This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. Isn't a facade just another kind of wall? Another kind of wall between people. You'll never know who I really am because I put up this facade, this wall. But it's also a wall between a relationship with Christ, a true relationship with God, because we try not to reveal ourselves to Him. Though He gets that overhead view, He can see everything about us. And yet we try to pretend we put the facade up. The Scriptures teach us that God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to this earth. But why? Well, He sent Jesus to take our place so that He would bear our cross, all so that we would not perish. But that's not all. Because of what He's done, we can now have a purpose. You see, God wants to use us. He wants us to be servants in the body of Christ. He wants us to take the message of hope that set us free and share it with all that we come in contact with. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 15, for the conclusion of our message entitled, A Building for God. What a great promise that is that you and I as lawbreakers, that through faith, we can receive the very righteousness of Christ. And none of us deserve that. None of us. It's not owed to any of us. What's owed to us is the punishment of being a lawbreaker. But by faith, we come to receive the completed work of Christ. His righteousness is now ours. So now we go back to Ephesians 2, and Paul goes on speaking of Jesus Again, Jesus who, in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. When Paul there, in verse 15, uses the word that we translate as abolished, He's using a word that literally means to make null and to make void, or to bring to no effect. One writer has said that this word is translated so many different ways, but in the main meaning is to make something useless, to make it null and void, to make it inoperative and powerless. But listen to this. He also emphasizes the fact that this word does not necessarily make it non-existent, or destroyed. So he abolished it, but he didn't make it non-existent or destroyed. We'll look at that in a moment. Another word that Paul uses there in verse 15, Paul speaks of enmity. And it, once again, he, he uses a Greek word, ekthran. Ekthran has this idea of hostility or hatred that again is there. It's that division that's there. Well, it comes from another Greek word that's ekthros. And ekthros carries with it an even deeper meaning. Ekthros has this idea of an enemy or a foe. It speaks of an adversary, again, in the noun form of it. And who is our adversary but Satan himself? That's the intensity of this word. It also has, as the other one, hateful or hostile against us. So what is it that the death of Christ is made inoperative and powerless, but not necessarily non-existent? Or destroyed? What was it that was enmity or an enemy and hatred and an adversary literally to us? Beloved, it was the law. The law that was placed there as the standard that no man could keep. 
Yet God gave that law in order that we might see His holiness and our sinfulness. The law was placed there in order that we might see that God has a standard that no man can keep. Therefore, why the sacrifices? Therefore, why the offerings before this God? Because in our life there was no way that we could live up to the law. He was telling us that Jesus has totally eliminated the death sentence that was against us all due to the law of commandments that were contained in the ordinances, the Old Testament law. And yet he didn't do away with or abolish the law itself. Remember, Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it in every aspect. So the law still remains. The law still declares that we are sinners in great need of a Savior. The law still declares that our God is a great and a holy and a righteous God, and we are not. And therefore, there is something that needs to span that space between us. So the law remains declaring the greatness of our need for this Savior. The law is necessary to help us to be able to recognize our sin, to help us to be able to recognize our need for the Savior. The law itself is good, even though for us it's death. But yet it's good. Christ came, he fulfilled the law, and then took the punishment of our inability to fulfill the law upon himself. In other words, by the death of Christ, the payment of our sin has been atoned for. The debt of our transgression has been paid. The wall of separation is no longer of any effect in our lives. He did all of that as the plan of God. That's why in verse 16 we read that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death that enmity. He did away with the hostility of the law. The law is no longer over us. The law is no longer that impeding thing that that brings death. He did away with the enmity of the law. And he came and he preached peace to you, the Gentiles, those who were afar off, and to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have that access by one Spirit to the Father. Christ has now become our peace. Peace between Jew and Gentile and peace between man and God. He's removed the hostility. He's removed the division. He's removed that separation. In a world that has no peace through faith in Christ, we're given peace. You and I as believers, the peace of Christ needs to be reigning and ruling in our hearts and lives. The fact is that there are so many believers, unfortunately, that walk through the entire existence without that peace without that assurance, without that knowledge of their place in the heavenlies with Christ, without the knowledge and the assurance that, man, the hostility has been done away with. He's abolished that. He now brings us peace. And, beloved, in the maturity of a believer, as they grow, they ought to be able to grow in peace, grow in that knowledge that, you know what, this world is messed up. There's just no doubt about this world is messed up. And as long as we're in this world, there's going to be stuff that comes against us. But even in this world, we can have peace. Even in the limitations of our flesh, we can have peace. Even in the failings of our flesh, we can have peace. The process of these things, God had reached out. 
He's reached out to all, both near and, and far. Those under the Old Testament covenant as well as those that were separated from it, drawing us all near. And beloved, this is the mystery of the gospel. Jew and Gentile that's been called together. And we're called together as one body. We're called together as one entity. Beloved, we are called together as the church. That's who we are. We are the church. We here in this building are only a small little microcosm of the reality and the truth of the whole church. I've shared with you multiple times that there is this, this great universal church. There is that that is the church visible. And the church visible is the ones that come through the church doors every weekend of, of churches all throughout not only our nation but around the world. They just simply come through and that is the church visible. But there is truly a difference between the church visible and the true church. You see, the true church are those who have come by faith to receive that gift of salvation that's come through Christ. The visible church or any of those that come, and perhaps they've even joined, perhaps they're even working, perhaps they're even a, a part of ministries, but they've never come by faith to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. It's only at that point in time that we become a part of the true church. Before we get too far in, in this passage, I want to take another look, real quick look at verse 18, where he says in verse 18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. It's in the midst of God's call that we see the, the beauty and the reality and the inner workings and the harmony of the Trinity of God. He says, through him. Who is the him that he speaks of here? It's God the Son. Jesus Christ, through Him, through Jesus Christ. He says we have access by one Spirit. Who is the Spirit that He speaks of? It's God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, He says we have access to the Father. Who is the Father? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father. All three working together as one to bring peace, to bring salvation to those who would believe. All three working together as one to bring us into that right relationship with the one true God. All three of them working together as one to bring us into the household of faith. That's why Paul can continue. He says in verse 19, that's why now therefore it's because of this. That you're no longer strangers, you're no longer foreigners, you're now fellow citizens with the saints, you're members of the household of God, and you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul uses the metaphor of building, and you and I, as we come to faith by Christ, we become a part of this glorious building, not a building that's made with brick and mortar and stone and, and wood, we're built by God, under God, for His glory. And like every building, we need a strong foundation. And Paul here is telling us that the household of faith, this building that you and I are a part of, this household of faith is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. What exactly does he mean by the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? Well, we can get a clue when we look at the activity of the early church. The early church we read about in the early chapters of Acts, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says of the early church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in 
prayers. The apostles' doctrine, the, the apostles' teaching, that was the very beginning of the foundation of the church. It was through their understanding of the message of Christ and the fulfillment of all the prophetic messages that they had heard that established the early church. Now, the prophets that he speaks of here, most certainly he's referring also to those who moved in those offices in the early stages of the church. However, I think that the teaching of the apostles and even those New Testament prophets, they used the Old Testament prophets and prophecies and the scriptures in their presentation of the very hope of the gospel, being able to look. This is what the prophets of old have said about who Jesus is. That was, again, the scripture that they use on a continual basis. That's why Philip, as he shared the message of Jesus Christ with that Ethiopian eunuch, what did he preach from? He preached from the book of Isaiah, and he led him to Christ by preaching from the book of Isaiah. Interesting thing. Would you be able to share Christ with someone by saying only in the Old Testament? What a beautiful way to witness to someone who has a Jewish heritage, to simply remain in the Old Testament and say, this is what and who Christ is, and this is what he's done for you. Throughout all the letters, uh, Paul and Peter and James and John, the writer of Hebrews, they are filled with Old Testament quotes. Jesus himself, as he taught through the Gospels, continually quoted the Old Testament. Beloved, that's the foundation of the church, and it saddens my heart when I hear of believers who say, well, I don't really need the Old Testament. You see, I'm just a New Testament believer. Then you don't have a very good foundation under you. Because you see, it's the Old Testament that gives us the foundation of understanding the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the teachings or the doctrine of the New Testament. Though not in their complete fashion, they're kind of a pre-type. In the New Testament, we find those teachings of the Old Testament, then in their completed version. That's why I love the little phrase or the little saying that says that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, while the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Both of them go together. We don't have half a book with us. We need the whole thing. I believe it's necessary for our understanding of what God is working and doing in our lives. The teachings of the apostles was the teaching of the prophets. That's also why it's so important for all of us to have that understanding of the Old Testament in order that we might understand the new better and clearer. The teachings of the apostles and the prophets, the very foundation of the church. There's an old hymn that says, Oh, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The foundation of our faith. Then beyond that, Paul speaks of the cornerstone or the foundation, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. The concept of the cornerstone comes from the idea of ancient building practices where they would set the cornerstone first. And once the cornerstone is set and situated in the exact place that it needed to be, everything else in the entire building would have to line up with that cornerstone. And in our lives, Christ is our cornerstone, and as our lives continue to grow, as the church continues to grow, it needs to be lined up perfectly with Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. 
That's why the psalmist declared, even as Robert read earlier in Psalm 118, he says, the stone which the builders rejected, it's become our chief cornerstone. He is our chief cornerstone. It's that same verse from Psalm 118 that's quoted throughout the New Testament speaking of Jesus as that cornerstone. It's that same verse that Peter uses in Acts chapter 4, again, as he's debating with the Jewish leadership. And he says that that stone which was rejected by you builders, pointing to those Jewish leaders, he says that stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 12, he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the only cornerstone. With Jesus as the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets and their teachings laid as a foundation, we continue to build a building unto the Lord. And as Paul says here in Ephesians 2, verse 21, he says, In whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Beloved, we are built together. We are built together with the amount of diversity even that's within this room. God is building us together as part of that building. We're just one little room, one little section in this whole massive building that God is building. But yet he takes the diversity of each one of us and puts them together as that household of faith. He takes us who we are, where we've come from, as he works and changes us, and he builds us as that holy temple in the Lord. He works and moves in all of us to become that dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And you know what? Each one of you, each one of us, are necessary in that structure. There's not a one of us that can say, you know what, I'm not very important. I don't have much talent. I don't have much abilities. I don't have much resources. I'm not really important in the body of Christ. But, beloved, you are. Every one of you are. Otherwise, why would God have called you into his building? God doesn't waste the blood of Christ. As he's called you to himself, he's called you for a purpose. You are a part, an important part of the building of Christ. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking, well, I'm of no importance to the body of Christ. Beloved, don't ever look at someone else and say they are of no importance to the body of Christ. Because you and I don't know what God is working and doing in their lives, just as you and I have no clue many times what God is doing in our own lives. I may think I do, and then tomorrow comes. And tomorrow can change us totally. Paul changes his metaphors throughout all of his letters in Ephesians. He kind of does the same thing. A little bit later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, he writes about the body, that we are part of this body. He says the whole body, we're joined, we're knit together by what every joint supplies, every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. What is your share? What is your part and portion within the body of Christ? If you don't know that, then perhaps the most important thing that you could begin doing even this morning Say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me? What part am I? Am I to be an encourager? Am I to be one who challenges? Am I to be a, you're definitely to be a servant. We're all called to be a servant one to another. 
what aspect, what area would God use you? I'm going to step away from my notes right now, and I'm going to start to preach in here in a minute. But you know what? In the reality of the body of Christ, if we are healthy, if we are strong, if we are maturing, there should never be a plea more than once for a need within the church. We need a Sunday school teacher. You know what? I haven't found. Let me step into that. Maybe that's where God would have me. There's a need over here. Someone needs this. There ought to be, again, the health and the growing of a church that says, man, I just want to be used. I want to be poured out for Christ. That's who we are as the body. And I can prove it to you by this very point. Any of you that has ever had a a limb or an appendage that's been hurt, what happens? Everything else kind of steps into its place. I'm right-handed, but if I hurt my right hand, you know what? My left hand may not do the job really well, but it's going to step into its place. Never once have I had my left hand say to my right hand, that's not my job. (laughs) That's your responsibility, and oh well about the fact that, you know, you got hurt. Oh, well, about the fact that you're suffering at this point in time. You see, the body works among itself. And even as we've spoken in the last couple of weeks about the, the issues of cancer in some individuals' lives, what is cancer but is a cell that sucks the very life out of the other cells? You see, we're not called to be cancers. We're called to be life givers. How important it is for both you and I to know, to understand that because of the love of God, because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, that drawing power of the Holy Spirit, we who would otherwise not even be a part of each other's lives are now called to be joined together. And rather use the metaphor of the building or the body. We are joined together for purpose and for practice, to be built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, to be joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And you know what? There's no getting around that. There's no getting around the fact that the body of Christ is a living organism. He's called us together whether it be as a building or as a body, but we are a living organism. This building, this holy temple of the Lord, is to be active in the world that we find ourselves in. And the circle of influence in your life is different than the circle of influence in my life. The people that you're going to touch is going to be a lot different than the people I can touch. You know people and you interact with people that I never will or that others won't. God has placed you in purpose and position for His glory, for His grace. Not simply to be a facade. Oh yeah, I'm a believer. Can't you see it on the outside? But what's true on the backside? The dictionary defines facade as the front of a building, especially an imposing or decorative one. But the second definition also says a superficial appearance or illusion of something, a way of behaving or appearing that gives other people a false idea of your true situation. And in reality, isn't a facade just another kind of wall? Another kind of wall between people. You'll never know who I really am because I put up this facade, this wall. But it's also a wall between a relationship with Christ, a 
a true relationship with God because we try not to reveal ourselves to him. Though he gets that overhead view, he can see everything about us. And yet we try to pretend. We put the facade up. We're his building. We are the temple of God through the Spirit. But are we simply a facade? How do you find yourself in that mix? Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. Pastor David will continue verse by verse through the book of Ephesians next time. Now, we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to TheOpenWord.com and follow the link to The Open Word Facebook page. To stay current with what's being broadcasted here on The Open Word, subscribe to our Twitter feed at The Open Word Radio. You can subscribe to The Open Word Podcast at TheOpenWord.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. The Open Word Podcast is always available and completely free. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to the Open Word Podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to TheOpenWord.com and subscribe to the Open Word Podcast. And to become our Facebook friend, follow the Open Word Twitter feed, or to access the archive of messages, log on to TheOpenWord.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next study of Pastor David's teaching through the book of Ephesians. That's next time on The Open Word.